Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11. We are currently involved in an expository study of the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves today in chapter 11. It's been said by many that Revelation chapter 11 is the most difficult book or chapter in the book of Revelation, and some even claim one of the most difficult in the entire Bible to understand. There are many views and many takes on the meaning of uh, the chapter. Those of you who are visiting with us today, you're dropping into the midst of a study that we've been developing for months as far as context, what the book of Revelation is about, uh, what the time frame of its prophecies are in terms of what they refer to and the like. So it's uh, somewhat challenged to come to our service today in the middle of um, a study and entering into one of the most difficult chapters in that study. So I think I'll take a few moments here uh, to look at the bigger picture of Revelation before we come into this chapter 11. Now, you have the outline structure of the book of Revelation before you. If you don't and you need a copy of that, there's a copy back on the table. Clark will get you one. This is the structure of Revelation chapter 6 through 18 wherein we have the central section of the book that is dealing with the judgments of God upon apostates, upon unbelievers, upon the wicked. And this judgment is brought to us, it is shown to us through a seven-sealed book that Christ receives from the Father in chapter 5, and those seven seals are then opened in chapter 6, and the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, verse 1. From the seventh seal, we have the sounding of the seven trumpets, which is another series of judgments to be visited upon those who've rejected Jesus Christ. And we see the sounding of those trumpets in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And then we have the pouring out of the seven vials of judgment. There's three series of judgments in chapter 15 and 16. But in the midst of this section, revealing the judgments of God, we have what we're calling interludes or parentheses. And these interludes and parentheses give to us supplemental material that we should understand to give important context and explanation for the judgments that are being revealed to us in the seals, the trumpets, and the vials. And so if you look at your outline there, after the opening of the first six seals, we have an interlude where we have the 144,000 of the tribes of Israel followed by another vision of the great multitude that no man can number. The section we're in this morning is the second interlude that's between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. So this is where we're at in our study of the book of Revelation. 
chapter 10 and 11, we have our second interlude, and this deals with three things. The angel, the mighty angel, and a book that's in his hand that he gives to John. Secondly, the measuring of the temple, chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, and then the two witnesses in chapter 11, verses 3 to 14, and that is our subject today, these two witnesses. Now, again, having said that, that really doesn't help a whole lot to give you um, understanding the perspective that we're taking in the book of Revelation, so let me back up just a little bit further. There are four essential views of how we should understand Revelation. One of them is called the futurist view, which is very popular today, which means that all that we're looking at here in these series of judgments and these seals, trumpets, and vials are talking about things that are yet in the future, not only from John's day, but from ours. They refer to what is called the end times of history. And during those end times, according to this view, a great and evil personage called the Antichrist will arise and there will be great strife and warfare in the world. And God will, at that time, bring about definitive judgments upon the Antichrist and his kingdom and the world and man's rebellion and overthrow that wickedness and then establish his kingdom, millennial kingdom, for a thousand years. It's called the futurist view, very popular today. There's also what's called the idealist view that sees the book of Revelation not in terms of some particular time in history, but as looking at from in the sense of metaphors and symbols how God is working in history during the church age to establish the kingdom of Christ, to use his church in the world, and to judge his enemies. And therefore, all of these seals, trumpets, and vials are dealing not with actual events, but with the things that God is doing throughout the whole period between the day of Pentecost and the second coming of Christ. These are ideals. These are symbols of principles that are at work in history as they were in the first century through the centuries to our time. They're working today and they will continue to work until the end of the world. And so we're not to find in this book any literal fulfillment of these, but they are symbolic throughout. It's called the idealist view. There's also called the continuous historical view that teaches that the book of Revelation actually gives to us a survey of church history beginning in the first century all the way down to the second coming of Christ. And so therefore it talks about the Crusades. It talks about the wars with the Muslims and the Mohammedans. It talks about Napoleon and it talks about the rise of the papacy and it talks about the Reformation. And all of these things here that we see in the book of Revelation under these symbols is actually a summary, a continuous summary of church history in the world. The third view is called the contemporary historical view. And it believes that what we have in the book of Revelation are events that took place in the first century. When John wrote his book, he was writing to the churches of that day to prepare them for the mighty events that were going to happen in the first century. This is called the preterist view, and the word preterist comes from the, from the term that means past. And so from our perspective, the book of Revelation is dealing with historical events that are all past. They have all happened, except for at the very end of the book where we see uh, John going to the time of the uh, 
new heavens and the new earth and the end of time. But the bulk of the book and all of these judgments are talking about judgments that took place in the first century, particularly the judgments of God upon apostate Israel. They had rejected Jesus Christ. He had come unto them. He had uh, offered himself to them. He had preached the gospel of the kingdom to, to them, but they rejected him and they cried out that he was to be crucified. He was to be killed and he was And the Jews rejected him. But Jesus, at the end of his ministry, had some very strong words to say to them. Because they had rejected him, like they'd rejected all the prophets of God through history, there was coming a time of unprecedented suffering and judgment that was going to fall upon them. And in Matthew 23, for example, that last message that he preached in Jerusalem was, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you, woe unto you. And he talked about their unbelief. He talked about their hypocrisy. And he talked about their rejection of himself and God's prophets. And he said that their house was left unto them desolate. And as they were leaving the temple, the disciples who were with him looked at this magnificent structure, one of the greatest... uh, architectural wonders of the ancient world was the Jerusalem temple and its courts. And they looked at this and they said, wow, Jesus, look at these beautiful temple, these stones and the, the, the uh, ornateness of it. It's just so beautiful. And Jesus said, you see all these stones? Not one of them is going to be left upon another. They go out of the temple, they go up to the Mount of Olives and they say, they ask Jesus, uh, when will these things be? I mean, this was a, a startling thing. It's like if you were down in the monuments in Washington, D.C. and marveling at the Capitol building or, or the Lincoln Memorial and all these, the pillars and the beauty of it all. And you say, wow, look how great this is. Did you see these things? Within a generation, they're all going to be rubble. Not one stone is going to be left upon another. You would say, what? And that's what they said to Jesus. And he gave them what's called the Olivet Discourse, where he taught that within the time frame of that generation... God's judgment would fall upon Israel and Judea and the temple and the city of Jerusalem would be leveled to the ground by armies that God would send against them. Historically, we know this to be the Jewish-Roman War of 66 to 70 AD when God sent the Roman armies into Judea. They defeated the Jews who had rebelled against Rome and they came and they encircled Jerusalem, they laid siege to Jerusalem, and after about six months, they took the city and they leveled it. And not one stone was left upon another. In this view of Revelation, this last view called the contemporary historical view, Revelation is about those events. The book of Revelation is an expansion on further teaching concerning the very same things Jesus taught in Matthew 24. It's talking about what happened in the Jewish-Roman War and the seals, the trumpets, and vials trace the course of that war and the destruction upon Judea and the Jews and the leveling of their temple and their city. And really then what it is, it's a New Testament counterpart, for example, to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called by God to prophesy to Judah in his days. And this was, about, this was about 600 B.C. 
that he was ministry began before that, but he was prophesying that because Judah was so wicked, they were so rebellious that God was going to send an army, the Babylonians. And he was going to send the Babylonians and he was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and level the temple and take the people into captivity. And so Jeremiah prophesied about this and called the people to repentance in view of the coming judgment. And then they rejected Jeremiah. They sought to kill Jeremiah. But God protected him. But his prophecies were true. And then we have the book of Lamentations, where after the city is lying in ruins, smoking ruins, Jeremiah outside the city laments the judgment of God upon them for their sin. So that's what happened 600 B.C. Jeremiah. What we're saying then is Israel with far worse sin, far worse rejection of God. They rejected the prophet like unto Moses. They rejected their own Messiah, so their city will be destroyed. It will not be the Babylonians this time, but it will be the Romans. And the book of Revelation is the teaching that Christ gave, the revelation that he gave to John right before these events took place concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And so that is the fourth view, and that is the view that I take of the book of Revelation. I believe it is a contemporary historical book, which really is like all the other books of the Bible. It deals with its contemporaries. It deals with conditions that the church was facing, be it the Old Testament church or the New Testament church. It brought God's revelation to them. It prepared them for the things that were to come to pass. And it fortified them as they saw their world turn upside down. They knew God was in control because he had told them about it all beforehand. So when we come to the book of Revelation and the chapter that we're at here now and this interlude and the measuring of the temple and the two witnesses that are between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, as I've explained it, I believe what what we have here in chapter 11 is Jesus, who is the mighty angel, and we'll look at that in a moment again to further prove that. We did that in chapter 10. Jesus Christ, the glorified Son of Man, is appearing to John here, and he's explaining to him in this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, and the seventh trumpet is the final trumpet that marks the end of Judaism. It marks the end of the temple. It marks the end of that Old Testament system. He's explaining here, again, the need for this judgment. In other words, why does the temple have to be destroyed? Why do the people of Jerusalem have to be subjected to the ordeal of this terrible siege, the slaughter of untold thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands in this war with the Romans and the fall of Jerusalem? Why? We step back here. And in chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, he says, There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angels stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God. Where? The one in Jerusalem and the altar and them that worship therein. Measuring is often used in Scripture as an analogy, as a symbol, as a metaphor of judgment. In other words, there's a standard. When we measure something, for example, for inches, we get a a ruler that has a standard marks on it so that we can get an exact measurement. When we weigh something, 
we, we weigh it according to a standard measurement of ounces and pounds and so forth. And so the, the metaphor of measuring is to see if the people of John's day, the Jews in Jerusalem, who were supporting this temple, who were offering at the altar and were worshiping therein, met the standard of God's word. Did they live up to it? And the answer, of course, throughout the whole book of Revelation, here is no. And one of their big faults was this, the temple services, the altar, went out of business, as it were, when Christ gave the final sacrifice. We don't need Levitical priests anymore because Christ fulfills the priesthood. He's our great high priest. And all of that about the priesthood and the sacrifices was all a picture of Jesus Christ. They were foreshadowing Christ. They were types of Christ. And now that the reality is here, the shadows pass away. And so if we looked at this from a logical standpoint, if the Jews would have believed in Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection, like the apostles preached on Pentecost, there's still hope for you. If you'll realize you killed the Prince of Life, God's raised him from the dead. If you'll repent now... He'll send Jesus to refreshment of this nation. And they said, yes, they would have said, we need to stop the services. We need to disband the priesthood. We don't need him anymore. We have Christ. They didn't do it. They were still worshiping in the temple as if Christ had never come because they believed that Christ never had come. That is the Messiah had never come. They were still offering sacrifices because they didn't believe the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin and so on. And so when you measure them, According to the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, they were found wanting. Even in that famous passage when uh, the, the hand appeared in Babylon, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin. And Daniel was called to interpret it. And he said, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Therefore, your kingdom is taken from you. As it were, chapter 11, 1 and 2, God is saying, Christ is saying, you have been measured, Israel, according to the standard of God's word, and you have come up short. Therefore, your kingdom is taken from you and given to the Romans. Something to that effect. So that's what I believe we're dealing with in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now we come to the two witnesses our text for today. I hope that in that little brief survey there, it brought you to where I'm coming from as we approach this very difficult passage of Scripture. Let me read it, and then we will explain it in the time that remains. Again, recognizing that others have different views on this matter, and we respect our brothers and sisters in Christ who do take different views. But all views are not correct. One of them is correct and the others are not. Or we might say there's a blend of some of the views together. But essentially, it can't mean everything or anything you want it to mean. There's a meaning to this. And I will seek to explain it as I believe it should be understood. Recognizing that others take different views, my request to you is to be like the Bereans, to receive the word of God with all readiness of mind. Alert, thinking, okay, what's he saying? What's his arguments? What's the points here being made? What's the definitions of the words? How is he 
presenting his case. I'm going to give all attention to this. I'm going to look at the text myself as we study it. I'm going to, with all readiness of mind, consider it. Whether these things be so. And that's what they did, the, the Bereans. They received the word from Paul with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily after they heard Paul to see with what he said was true. And what Paul had said, of course, what shocked them is that Jesus was the Messiah. Yeah, we'd heard about Jesus. He was crucified in Jerusalem, rejected by our leaders. And you're telling us now he's our Christ? And then Paul would argue from the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures and the, the uh, testimony of Christ's life and his miracles and his resurrection. And they would listen to it very carefully. And they did. And they thought this through, what Paul was saying. They went to the scripture texts that he used to prove that, that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they searched the scriptures daily. And the result, we're told in the book of Acts in that account, is that therefore many believed. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness of mind, searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. However, it also says, but many did not believe, which means they didn't receive the scriptures with readiness of mind and they didn't search them. This was the truth. So let's look at this passage I'm going to give a summary of its uh, uh, teaching here. But let me read it first. Now, this is right after the, John was told to measure the temple. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth, and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them, and shall overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them. And the same hour was there a great earthquake. And a tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now you see why we teachers and commentators say this is one of the most difficult passages in the book of Revelation. On the back of your bulletin I have an outline of this section. What I believe we are given here are seven things, seven particulars concerning these witnesses. And we're going to look at these and use this as the basis 
for identifying and understanding who these witnesses are. First of all, they are witnesses of Christ and two in number. He says they are my witnesses. So there's two. They're witnesses of Christ and two in number. Number two, they prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Both of those first points are in verse 3. Then verse 4, number 3, they're symbolically represented by two olive trees and two candlesticks. Number 4, they are endowed with miraculous powers. Verses 5 and 6. Number 5, they are killed by, quote, the beast, unquote, in the city where Christ was crucified and their death is celebrated. So here we're talking about them being killed and their death being celebrated, verses 7 to 10. Number six, they are given life after three and a half days and are taken up to heaven. And number seven, their resurrection is accompanied by a great earthquake that causes the remnant to fear and give glory to God. So whatever your view is in identifying these two witnesses, they need to fit all seven, right? That has to make sense in a comprehensive way, not just we pick a particular view and then we go from there and sort of skim over some of the details that don't fit the view. We have to be honest with ourselves in interpreting the Bible and seek to understand who these witnesses are by what the text reveals concerning them. So in verse 3, we start. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, who is speaking? The one who is speaking is the mighty angel that descended, came to John, and spoke to him in chapter 10. For example, verse 11, he said to me, who? The mighty angel. Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now, remember, chapter divisions are artificial in the sense that they are not part of the original text. They were added for our convenience, and I'm glad they were. But when John was writing this revelation, when he was being given this revelation, there was no break between chapter 10 and 11, no break between this interaction with himself and the mighty angel. None at all. And so he says, John, you've got to continue to prophesy. And then John says, in a sense, immediately, right after that, there was given me a reed, like unto a rod. And he was told, the, the angel, the mighty angel, said to him, rise and measure the temple and them that worship therein. Don't measure the court of the Gentiles. And then he says, and I, without again any break. So we're in the same context of what's going on here with the temple, the altar, and the holy city, Jerusalem, the 42 months, verse 2, and in addition to you measuring the temple, and the reason why you need to measure it is because judgment is coming, The holy city is going to be tread underfoot for 42 months. And during that same period of time, 
And we know it's the same period of time because we're told, and this is the second point, though, for 1,260 days, they're going to speak. And 1,260 days using the 30-day month, which was the way in which uh, the months were calculated, it's exactly 42 months. So we have the same person speaking, the same context, Jerusalem, the holy city, the temple, the altar, and so forth, and two witnesses speaking for the same period of time, though it is spoken and identified by days instead of months. So I will give power under my two witnesses. I believe this is convincing proof, the final proof, that the mighty angel of chapter 10 is the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in the Old Testament, he appeared as the angel of the Lord. He was the mighty angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. So he appears here again in the book of Revelation under that angel, which means servant or messenger. Of God. Now, if this was, like some argue, an angel like unto Gabriel, created being, there is no way an angel could say to John, describing these witnesses, that they will be my witnesses. Angels themselves were witnesses for God. They were not sending prophets. Only God sends his prophets. God sends his witnesses. And so when he says they're my two witnesses, they're not the angel's witnesses. That's never in the Bible. The angels say they're my witnesses. They always say they're the Lord's witnesses or God's witnesses. And so this is, to me, is decisive proof that the angel of chapter 10 is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ appearing in that form, under that uh, title. So he says, I'm going to give power to my two witnesses. I am going to give literally two witnesses. Notice the power is in italics. It it could be translated, I will give my witnesses unto. Unto who? Unto the city where that temple is that's going to be trodden down underfoot. Not only am I telling you about this judgment, John, but in my grace and mercy to them, I'm going to give them Two witnesses. So the witnesses are Christ, and they're given by him. By the way, the word witness is the word, the Greek word from which we get our English term martyr. The word literally means a witness, but a martyr was an individual who died for their witness. They sealed their witness with their blood. And so there's going to be two witnesses that are given. Now, there's a lot of discussion on uh, the identity of these two witnesses. Or do we just see these witnesses as symbols or do we see them literal? Those who see them as symbolic say what he's talking about here in this passage is in a very general, symbolic, idealistic way, I'm going to give them Moses and the prophets. Or I'm going to give give them, if these witnesses stand for the church, Jews, believing Jews and Gentiles. Or perhaps they refer to the apostles and prophets of the founding era of the church. Those two very important uh, witnesses to Christ that Ephesians talks much about. Or are they literal individuals? Are we to understand these as principles or entities or men? Those who take them literal, some suggest that they were actually Moses and Elijah 
come back to earth again because some of the details about these two witnesses that we will see in a moment. Others say, no, this is Peter and Paul. Others say, no, this is John the Baptist and Peter. Others argue this is James and Peter. Some say it was Stephen and James who were the first two recorded martyrs who died in Jerusalem and so on. The point of the matter is they're not named for us. And so we really don't know for sure. But we do know this, they're Christ's witnesses and they're given in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem, which is our context in chapter 11. He says they'll prophesy 1,203 score days, which as we already mentioned was the same period as 42 months. Now, I must have spent 20 minutes last week talking about 42 months. I cannot go back over that again. But the conclusion that I came to, and so I'll show you from historical sources, is the 42 months was the period of the Roman-Jewish War when the Romans entered Galilee and they were invincible and unstoppable from the beginning of their campaign to subdue the rebellion in Israel to the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was exactly, give or take, a day or two 42 months. And so the treading down of verse 2 of 42 months refers to the, the treading down of Judea and the Jews under the feet of the mighty Roman legions for the three and a half years of the war where they were unstoppable. Because in the very first year of the war, the Jews were in the ascendancy, but in the last three and a half, it was that. Okay, so... If that's the time period here, if I'm correct in that, then the period of prophecy of these men is the same 42 months of the Jewish war. Well, someone would ask, well, if it's the same, why didn't he just say 42 months? Well, I think a rather easy explanation of that is because of the nature of the war and the nature of prophecy. The nature of the war was an off and on affair. There were period of times when there was no fighting. There was period of times when there was intensity of fighting and so on. And therefore, it's counted in this broader categories of 42 months. But when it came to the prophets, they were there day in and day out preaching their message. And so it emphasizes the fact that they were, as we say, the boots on the ground. They were there in Jerusalem day in, day out, carrying out their witness. And so he gives it to in days rather than months. But regardless, they refer to the same period of time. The other possibility, it is simply that of prophetic variety, just to state the time in different uh, time denominations. It's the same period of time. So who are these? These are two witnesses during the Jewish-Roman War, during the period of time that Rome has entered the land and judgment is on its way, even as Jesus had predicted. God at that time, Jesus at that time, in his, in his abundant mercy, is going to give to Israel one last voice, two voices. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter will be established. He's going to send two prophets into Jerusalem during that time to give a message what? Well, look what they're clothed in. They're clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a type of garment that was used to show humiliation and repentance. Humiliation and repentance. It was an unsightly garment. 
today with sackcloth, and we would put it in our terms, they were wearing feed sacks with the head cut out and the arms and the legs, walking around with feed sacks in a sign of great humiliation. Life cannot go on as it is. We are reduced to nothing, near to nothing, that we have to clothe ourselves in this humble and coarse fashion. Now, why were they clothed that way? It's what their message was. It was a message of woe. It was a message of doom. It was a message of judgment. I believe that these two witnesses came with a message to this doomed city in a similar way that Jonah was sent to a, uh, this, this uh, Nineveh, this, the uh, heathen city. God had had it with Nineveh. Their wickedness had reached up to heaven. The stench of their immorality and, and tyranny had come to God and judgment was now decreed. But in his mercy to these unbelieving Gentiles... He sent Jonah, and Jonah came into the city with a message, which we know Jonah didn't go very readily, but he wound up getting there. What was his message? Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days. You're done. That was his message. He didn't even offer salvation. Nothing. You read Jonah. But what happened when this message came? It electrified the city. The Spirit of God worked mightily and even came to the ears of the king. And then when the king heard it, what did he do? He laid aside all of his royal garments and all of his luxuries and he put on sackcloth. And he proclaimed to the whole city, everybody is to repent. Put on sackcloth and ashes. Don't eat. Fast. Pray. Cry mightily to the God of heaven. Perhaps he'll spare us. That was their response to the preaching of Jonah. And they did respond. And though God said through his prophets, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, 40 days came and Nineveh was not destroyed. Is that because the word of the Lord is not true? No, it's because that message is always contingent on man's response. And they responded the way they were supposed to respond, with repentance. I envision, whether you agree with me or not, that these two witnesses came with a Jonah-like message to Jerusalem. Forty days in Jerusalem in the temple or rubble, but not 40 days. 1,260 days. They counted them off. The end has come. Your judgment is decreed. This is what these men were. This was what their mission was. And so here at the very end, one last time, the merciful God of heaven is holding out to his people Israel the possibility of forgiveness if they'll repent. I'm not saying that these prophets didn't offer forgiveness. But I'm saying it might have been just like Jonah. They were in sackcloth. Some say this is a picture of the church and the idealist view, preaching the gospel to the world. Well, I challenge you to show me one picture of the apostles or Jesus and his disciples, this the 12 he sent out two by two, the 70, going into Israel in sackcloth. The gospel message is good news. You don't wear sackcloth when you preach the gospel. You declare, I've got wonderful news for you, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enlivening message. It's a wonderful message. It's a joyous message. It's a good message. 
I don't think these men were in Jerusalem preaching the gospel in that sense. They were preaching a message of doom, just like Jeremiah. I spoke of Jonah, but let's think of Jeremiah. He came to Jerusalem. He came with a message of doom. He said the Babylonians are coming. God is fed up with your sin. His counsel to them was submit to the judgment. Submit to the Babylonian yoke. And it will go better with you than if you do not submit to God's chastisement. By the way, it's a good story. When God chastisements upon you, it's time to submit to it. Don't fight it. Get worse. Well, they fought it. They, they rejected Jeremiah's message. And of course, the end was the absolute destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And their temple was leveled to the ground then. And so these witnesses are coming, bringing this message to this city. And they're clothed in sackcloth because it's a message of doom. It's a message of woe. Just like Jesus said, woe unto you, Jerusalem. So they are saying the same. Now, the, the, these men were powerful witnesses. And they're symbolically represented in verse 11 by two olive trees and two candlesticks. This seems to take us back to the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, we have a, a vision of God's two servants, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And in that vision, they, we are told that these two men, these leaders in Jerusalem, were like two olive trees and two candlesticks. Now, what was the context of Zerubbabel and Joshua's ministry in the book of Zechariah? It was the rebuilding of the temple. This was on the other side of the Babylonian captivity. They had been charged by God with this awesome, important task of going back, clearing away the rubble, and rebuilding the temple. And that was no easy job. And they were daunted by it. Satan was opposing him. The Gentiles, who were his instruments around them, were opposing them. But God, through Zechariah, is encouraging him. Get to the work. And in the vision... He says, you're two candlesticks of mine. You're the two olive trees of mine. And the whole point of the vision was that they were to be God's light to the people. Zerubbabel, the civil leader, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, to lead the people courageously forward to rebuild the temple. And they were shown forth in this symbolism of olive tree, two olive trees and Two candlesticks, which is an interesting point, too, in the passage, because candlesticks back then, uh, the, the, imp, the um, vessel that held the wick was the candlestick. And what did it burn? Wax? Uh-uh. Olive oil. And so the olive trees and the, and the candlestick. And then he explains it in these memorable words what they are. I'm showing you this vision of the two olive trees and the two candlesticks because not by might nor by power, saith the Lord, but my spirit. That's how you'll succeed. And I think what he's saying here, these men have an awesome task. They have a, a, a very dangerous task. They're sent into the, into the very belly of the beast, into Jerusalem to preach repentance in view of the coming judgment upon Israel 
and they could never do it in their own strength. But they were like Joshua and Zerubbabel, two candlesticks, two olive trees standing before the God of the earth, and it was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. So these were symbolically represented in that way. That's the picture. They were mighty men of God. Thirdly, they're endowed with miraculous powers. Here, the vision, excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. It's not a vision. I was going to say that earlier in my sermon, there is no vision here that's given to John. Jesus is narrating this to them. Here's what I'm going to do. He's telling them. John's not seeing this. He's hearing it. Jesus is telling him what I will do. And he's telling them that these men will be endowed with miraculous powers. Two prophets come to mind with these powers. First, Elijah, and secondly, Moses. In other words, these men will be empowered along the same lines as these two great Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Moses. When Elijah was prophesying, the king of Israel believed that he was giving information to the enemies and he wanted to go and arrest him. And so he sent a captain... How many men were with him? With 50 men to arrest him. And he was sitting on top of the hill. And the captain said, come down, thou man of God. You're under arrest, basically. Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume thee and thy 50. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50. You think they would have given up then? No, they try again. Send another group. Exact same... Um, dialogues, exact same result. And then when the third captain with his 50 comes, he gets on his hands and knees and trembling and he begs for mercy (laughs) from Elijah. Please, Elijah, don't call down fire on us. We're just here doing what we've been told to do and so on. And he goes with them then. But that's the picture here. And I don't know that we're to take this literally, but it's showing the kind of power. I think that there's a, a mixture of literal and symbolic in this section and this fire proceeding out of their mouth is probably understood in the same way it didn't come out of Elijah's mouth he called it down by his mouth Elijah didn't like a fire breathing dragon and open his mouth and consume him he called fire down from heaven but there's These words in Jeremiah 5, and in a sense, I think these witnesses are like Jeremiah. Here's what he says. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire. And this people would, and it shall devour them. Now, no one understands that Jeremiah passage is literal. For example, he didn't turn the people of Israel into wood. And it was not literal fire coming out of Jeremiah's mouth that burned up the people who were turned into sticks and logs. No, it's, all, it's symbolic of the, the, the power of God's word to execute judgment on the wicked. And I think that's what it's talking about here. And it, they, they did call down judgments, though, I believe, upon those people who opposed them in Jerusalem. They had power to do it and they exercised it. Through prayer, their enemies were overturned. Through prayer, they were stopped. The next example is power from heaven that it rained not. 
Who does that make us think of? Again, Elijah, who shut up the heavens for three and a half years, and it was by his prayers. What this is seeking to tell us is that these two prophets were mighty men in the same vein as Elijah, and they had miraculous powers, and they used them. And that's one of the reasons why they lasted 1,260 days in the lion's den of Jerusalem. And the people hated them, which we will see when they die. Then we see the power of Moses, spoken of in verse 6, about turning the waters into blood and the plagues. Just like Moses, and we read about some of that this morning in the book of Exodus, the plagues that came down upon the people and so on. So I think what this is saying in these verses is that these men are endowed with miraculous powers. We won't go any further than that for now. But then in verses 7 to 10, we see, number 5, that they're killed by the beast. It says this, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. Now, the bottomless pit, as we saw earlier in our uh, study of Revelation... refers to literally the abyss. And back in chapter 8, chapter 9, excuse me. Okay, verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, the smoke of a great furnace, and uh, so on. There's the abyss. He opened it. But then we come down to verse 11, chapter 9. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the abyss, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon. The beast from the bottomless pit. We're not going to say a lot about the beast today because it's really reserved for chapter 13 where the, the beast is spoken of many times. Uh, just, just as a suggestion at this point, it's very likely that the beast that's being spoken of here that comes from the abyss is that very mighty demonic being that we spoke about in chapter, that John spoke about in chapter 9 whose name is Apollyon. Remember that plague and the, the, the so-called locust-like creatures, we interpreted that as demonic plague. Symbolic representation of the whole land of Israel being uh, swamped with a demonic invasion. And so what I think this is saying here is these two prophets will be killed. They'll be killed by men, but men who are under the control of demonic powers, even the, the very angel of the bottomless pit. But notice that though this beast from the bottomless pit makes war against them, sounds like a campaign, finally he overcomes them and kills them. Does that mean that the beast is more powerful than the one who sent these witnesses? No, look what it says. And when they shall have finished their testimony. They were invincible until that day. They couldn't be killed until they were finished. It's like Jesus in his ministry. We read of many times the people took to kill him. 
but his time had not yet come, and he walked through the midst of them. Jesus could not be touched. They wanted to kill him many times. They wanted to throw him over the cliffs in Nazareth. But he walked through the midst of him because his time had not yet come. Jesus Christ was invincible, but then he voluntarily gave his life on the cross when his time had come. So these prophets are invincible, even though the enemies are making war against them, they're trying to overcome them and kill them, they don't succeed until their time is finished. And the finishing of their testimony may have close reference to the time factor of the 1,260 days. The end has come. Their ministry is over. They've delivered faithfully what God gave them, what Christ gave them to say. And now, since their, their work is over, now they die. Which, by the way, is how it is for all of us. Whether it's martyrdom or a heart attack, you are not going to die until your work is finished. You're invincible, as it were, until your work is finished. Take heart, brother and sister. Be faithful. Because nothing has power of you. No disease has power over you. No evil men, no demons have power over you, even though they make war against you until your work is done. And then when their work's done, they're killed. Great indignity is shown to them. They're denied burial. They're left in the city, the streets of the great city. What city is that? Well, the context already told us it's where the temple and the altar is, it's also the holy city. But here we're told even further what the great city is referring to here. The great city is Jerusalem. It's spiritually called Sodom in Egypt. If you understand the, the imagery of Sodom, it's a, it's a den of iniquity at this time in history when Revelation was written. And they are like the Egyptians in that they're violent and they oppress and kill and persecute the true people of God spiritually there means the spiritual minded understand when I say this city is Sodom and Egypt. By the way, the prophets referred to Jerusalem as Sodom in the Old Testament. But all question about what city this is, is ended. Where also our Lord was crucified. Go to your Gospels. There's no question where he was crucified. Jerusalem. They're killed in the city, and their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem. Now, this, to me, is an important point in establishing the literalness of this passage. This is not to be understood symbolically. It seems to me we have a literal city in view. What does that mean? If it's symbolic, some people might say, well, it's symbolic of the new Jerusalem. Uh-uh. Is the new Jerusalem where Christ was crucified? Even if it's crucifixion in a symbolic sense, where it talks about people crucifying the Lord afresh. Uh-uh. Not the new Jerusalem, not the true church. We don't crucify Christ. This is talking about the historical city. And if it's an historical city, then the street they're laying in is a, is a literal street. And that means that the bodies that lay in the street are literal bodies. And if the bodies are literal, that means the men who are the witnesses are literal men, not just idealistic principles or the church as a whole and so forth. One of the reasons why I think we need to take this chapter literally. Then we have in verse 9 how the people rejoice, all these different ones, 
Some are stumbled by the fact that it says, the people of kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and rejoice and say, well, that uh, I I can't apply to a literal Jerusalem and lying in the streets. Well, yes, it can. How is that? Well, on on the day of Pentecost, which was another great feast of Israel, we're told this in Acts 2. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and in parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. They were all in Jerusalem. Why? They're there for the feast. And when did the Roman army lay siege to Jerusalem? We've talked about this numerous times. It was at the Passover. And so when this, these men were killed would be the very end, right before Jerusalem fell. Jerusalem was packed with Jews and Gentile proselytes from all over the world. Just like they were on the day of Pentecost, they all witnessed the Spirit's descent, so here they witness that. And they rejoice. They make merry because these two prophets tormented them. I'm sure they did. Their preaching tormented them. They preached judgment. They preached sin. They preached repentance. They preached the holiness of God and the guilt of the people. That is not a popular message. And it torments those who are in the flesh. In Isaiah's day, Judah had this approach to preaching. And the Lord is speaking here. And he says, this is a rebellious people. Lying children. Children that will not hear the law of the Lord. Which say to the seers or to the, to the prophets, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceit. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path that is that God's called you to. Please us. Don't please God. That's the point. They go on to literally say, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Don't preach a holy God. Don't preach the law of God. Don't preach right things, but preach things we like to hear. Smooth things. These prophets didn't preach that way. They tormented them. It's good to be tormented by the preaching you hear, if you're in sin. What happens to these men after they're given life after three and a half days? And they're taken up to heaven. Three and a half days, the spirit of life from God entered into them. They stood up on their feet with great fear fell upon them, which saw them. And a great voice with heaven said, come up. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud. Given life after three and a half days. We come to the, this is the last part about the lives of these uh, men. Notice the similarity to Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection. 
that we've seen in this section. Christ carried out His prophetic ministry to Israel with great power and with many miracles. Number two, His enemies couldn't kill Him until His work was finished. Number three, His enemies, inspired by demons, made war against Him throughout His whole ministry, and ultimately they were able to put Him to death in Jerusalem. Number four, His enemies rejoiced at His death. Number five, He lay three days dead in the tomb. Number six, the Spirit of God entered into him and he arose from the dead and ascended to heaven. And number seven, the news of his resurrection filled his enemies with consternation. But he was vindicated by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What do these verses mean here in our context? I don't know for sure. These are difficult. The literal meaning is plain. Can this be the meaning here? Is it true that these two prophets actually had this uh, resurrection and ascension in the sight of the people? I don't know. Could that have happened, biblically speaking? Most certainly it could have. Remember these men were in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah is referred to earlier. What happened to Elijah? He didn't die. Something even uh, more amazing, but he was walking with Elisha and he said, put some space between us and the chariot of the Lord fire came down and took up Elisha and Elisha watched him and he ascended up into heaven in this chariot of fire. Did that happen? Do you believe it? Well, if you do, why is there a problem believing that this could have happened? If the rest of the chapter is to be understood in an essentially literal way, though there are figurative elements describing these literal prophets, who says this couldn't have happened? And so therefore, in my, in my own conclusion is that this is likely exactly what took place. As almost like the very last witness, the last thing, even beyond their words, they were vindicated in everything they said by this dramatic display. But not only was this a dramatic display, the last thing we're told here is a great earthquake accompanied all of this. They ascended up to heaven. There was a great earthquake. Tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain seven, slain men, 7,000. And the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. And then verse 14 tells us that we're now going on to the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet, which is the end of Jerusalem. So this happens right at the very end of uh, Jerusalem standing and the temple standing. Their ministry of these prophets comes to an end. And so my own view on this passage is, within the historical context of the book here, that this is referring to two prophets that were sent by Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem in the last days of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. They ministered in the city for a period of 42 months or 1260 days through all that time of the war. They were like unto Jonah coming to Jerusalem saying in so many days Jerusalem will be destroyed. Their message was rejected. They were eventually killed. And then as a vindication of all that they had said, a dramatic resurrection took place before the very eyes of the people and they ascended into heaven. This was followed by a great earthquake, sending great fear throughout the land 
And even though I do not believe this is giving the glory to God of repentance, it is in the sense the undeniable exercise of divine glory and power even move these hardened men. Just like the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw the miracle of the men being saved out of the fiery furnace, as it were, given life through a death experience, he was astonished and he gave glory to the God of Israel. But he was not a convert. He still went on with his idolatrous and heathen ways. Though I do think maybe, after his seven years of being a beast, Nebuchadnezzar himself was converted in the end. So that's how I see the passage. And so it's said to be the most difficult passage in Revelation, but if you put it in its historical context and you take it in its essentially literal sense, it makes a lot of sense. And it's not so difficult after all. But then again, maybe it still is. I don't know how this um, comes across to you, but it, to me it is very inspiring. What I find here is if these are two literal witnesses, we have a dramatic, inspiring biblical account of two men of courage who would not, under all of the opposition, war was being made against them. They were, people were trying to kill them all the time, but they didn't say, okay, we're done, we're leaving Jerusalem, it's too hot here. They stayed for the entire length of their ministry, no matter how bad it got, and they sealed their testimony with their blood. I say if we're not inspired by the courage and fidelity of these two witnesses to be more faithful and courageous witnesses of Christ in a hostile and unbelieving world, what will inspire us? Nothing will inspire us. If this kind of passage does not, this historical account of what happened in Jerusalem prior to its destruction by these two men of God, witnesses of Christ, who sealed their testimony with their life. There's one other thing, one last point of application These men had to wear sackcloth. I do believe there's times in the church's history, in a preacher's ministry, in evangelist ministry, where figuratively speaking, we need to don sackcloth. Because we, like these men, have to bring a message to our culture that it's dying. That the doom of God stands over it. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days, Washington will be destroyed. There's times when the church has to give that same kind of message. But because we don't walk with Christ like these men did, we deny the call. And the message of repentance and judgment is not spoken. May God give us the courage in the culture and day which we live to take great... um, encouragement, fortitude and courage from the example of these two men as they came to Jerusalem in its last hours. And for three and a half years, unflinchingly told the truth. They paid for it with their lives, but they were vindicated by life eternal. They were raised from the dead, which all of God's people will be. All the martyrs, this was a dramatic example in the midst of one of the most dramatic events in all history, the fall of Jerusalem. Dramatic event. But all of the martyrs of Jesus Christ, in their due time, have the same experience. 
Their spirit goes to be with God, but then their body goes to be with God. It's always the victory. The vindication of the church is the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word in this text of Scripture today. Bless it according to your purposes, to our understanding, to our inspiration. In Jesus' name, amen.